the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. We're not just standing too close to the fire. We are arrogantly roasting marshmallows right by it. Arrogance and thinking we won't give in to temptation or perhaps just arrogance and thinking you can flirt with sin and still honor God. Join us now for Grace to the Bay as we glorify the Lord Jesus Christ through sound expository teaching by our teacher, Dr. Roger Chen. Grace to the Bay is the radio outreach of Grace Church of the Bay Area located in San Mateo. If you are blessed by Dr. Chen's message and are looking for a church home, you're invited to come worship with them. Now, here is Dr. Chen. Sometimes not everything is as it seems. It's a common experience of man to be in a particular situation and then to dig a little deeper only to find that things are much more complicated than you first thought. Despite this, we are often content to know things superficially because anything more would be too shocking, too difficult, or simply too much work. This is especially true when it comes to the matter of sin. It's easy to stop at saying, well, what I did was wrong. I need to stop doing it. Without delving into the deeper heart issue or try to see things from God's perspective through the Scriptures. But when you do take the time to do that, you will see that sin is more than just skin deep. There are intricate reasonings and explanations that increase your level of responsibility, but also your potential for holiness, to deal with your heart, to weed it out, to see things as God sees them. We've seen this very clearly in 1 Corinthians. Basically still on the topic of gray areas, we're learning more and more why Paul had a problem with Christians partaking of meals at pagan temples. And mind you, they weren't going in for the worship. They were bypassing the part where the animal was actually sacrificed. They were just coming afterwards for the birthday party or the wedding celebration. But Paul says it's not just dinner. It's not just good meat. And it's not just about causing others to stumble as we have seen thus far. We have undergone an expose of sorts as we look at the Corinthians and this particular issue. And in this final section on the topic, Paul really lifts the blinders off as he explains the true depravity of partaking of such things. This morning we find ourselves in verses 14 through 22 of 1 Corinthians 10. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. 
Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then, that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is nothing? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than He, are we? This morning and next we will see five concluding realities of this issue, this sin of idolatry. And again, I want to remind you that what Paul is addressing is not full-blown participation or idol worship. It's simply having a meal at an idol's temple. And so he concludes this issue and brings it home and shows us indeed how sinful and, as we've just read, demonic this is. The first concluding reality of idolatry we'll look at two this time is the reality of inference. The reality of inference. Again, in verses 14 and 15, I'll read those for you. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Up to this point, Paul has given us plenty of reasons to have nothing to do with idolatry. He's given us clear examples of how the Israelites turned to idolatry despite their incredible blessings, which you remember included the physical presence of God in the form of the fire and the cloud, the daily, every morning, miraculous provision of food out of nowhere. They saw it. He was with them. And yet somehow in their hearts they found it okay to turn from Him and turn to idolatry and its accompanying sexual immorality despite all of this. In his recounting, Paul does the Old Testament and God justice by including the consequences. Death, plague, destruction. And this was all a warning to the Corinthians and to us of the ease in which we can fall prey to temptation. He gives us the additional motivation to avoid such things in verse 13 that we saw last time when he tells us that all temptation has a God-given way of escape. You can endure it. You can bear it because God provides a way of escape. How do you know I can survive the fire? Because you're standing next to the door and you can exit the room. It is your choice. Stay there and let the flames engulf you, or just walk out. It's always there. But unlike a fire, the way out, according to 1 Corinthians 10.13, is never blocked. It's always there. It's open. God has given a way of escape. And with all of that in mind, He now concludes or infers, as indicated by this word, therefore, that all Christians must flee idolatry. Though not a major theological point in this context, we cannot overlook the fact that Paul once again refers to them as my beloved. This shows us not only Paul's affection for them, but also shows us that he is pleading with them. There's a sense of urgency here. You've got to stop doing this. Yes, he is blunt. Yes, he is strict. Yes, he is even harsh with them at times. But it's only because he loves them. And as a fellow Christian, loving them means desiring their spiritual walk to be strong. 
their lives to be God-honoring. This is what loving one another means. Not just for an apostle, not just for a pastor, but for all of us. It's not about people's happiness. It's not about people's comfort. If you as a Christian truly love another Christian or a non-Christian for that matter, your primary concern is their relationship with God, even if it hurts their feelings or makes them uncomfortable. And in this particular context, for that to happen, they must flee from idolatry. In other words, Paul says, run and keep running. The Greek tense indicates that this is to be a way of life. In other words, don't just run from that one temple meal. Don't just be convicted and cancel your plans at the temple tonight, but stay away and keep on staying away until you are no longer in this earth, this life. Because if you've been tempted once, then you must continually be aware, be vigilant, be alert for temptation may come again. And again, and then yet again. When he says to flee, he means have nothing to do with. Nothing. It means don't even trifle with it. Don't even toy with it. Don't linger around outside the courtyard. We've seen how seriously God takes this. And we should take it just as seriously. And by way of reminder, how seriously God takes it was him killing thousands of his chosen people. You see, God takes it seriously because he knows the dangers of such things and how it reflects or affects our relationship with him. He takes these things seriously because it violates his very essence, his character. And as we have seen and we'll see again later, how it invokes his judgment because of his holy character. For the believer, discipline. If there was indeed a fire in my house that was out of control, the first thing I would do would be to run and find my children. I would tell them, run out of the house. Flee, as Paul says. When I say that, I wouldn't be saying walk. I would be saying run as fast as you can. I wouldn't be telling them to stay in the house, just go to another room because the fire is going to break through that wall pretty soon. I wouldn't mean run as fast as you can just outside the front door and stay on the front step. I wouldn't even mean go and stay in the front yard. I would mean run and keep on running, get away, then stay away as far as possible until I or a fireman or a policeman comes and brings you back. And that is what Paul is saying about idolatry and all sin and temptation for that matter. In the context of the Corinthians and their idolatry, he says, don't just skip the ritual sacrifice, but come come for the meal. As the Corinthians, some Corinthians were doing, he says, flee. Don't even walk by that temple anymore if you're tempted to go in there to eat. Flee. Don't just skip parts of it and the rest are okay. Flee. Run away. Don't just search Google and stare at the names of the different websites without clicking on them. Don't even get on the computer. Don't just flee what tempts you in terms of 
worldly things. Don't just peruse the exotic car magazines but not go to the dealership. Don't even think about it. Flee. Run away. Flee idolatry. You see, what the Corinthians were doing by eating at the temple feasts was not fleeing. What you are doing when you just search things on Google or just play around in your mind, let your mind wander about riches or impurity or anger or revenge or whatever it is you're tempted by, is you're not running away from the house fire. You've kind of gone out of the way, but you're still close enough to get burned. You're still watching the flames. You can feel the heat. You can smell and breathe the smoke. You're not running away. You're staying close. You're too confident. You think you're okay. You're walking the line with one foot in the Scriptures and one foot in the world. Not only that, in a form of spiritual overconfidence that we talked about last week, by enjoying the fruits of pagan sacrifices or enjoying the mental gymnastics of fantasizing about things of the world, we're not just standing too close to the fire, we are arrogantly roasting marshmallows right by it. Arrogance and thinking we won't give in to temptation or perhaps just arrogance and thinking you can flirt with sin and still honor God. We must flee. What Paul is saying through his New Testament warning and Old Testament recollections is that sooner or later, if you do not flee, you will get burned. And even if you don't, what you're doing now in playing around dishonors God. Flee idolatry of any form. Flee sin of any form. Now, by this point in his discourse, this has become very clear to us and to the Corinthians. They get it. They actually probably understand the Old Testament illustrations more thoroughly and deeply than we do, being surrounded by a Jewish culture, some of them Jews themselves. Which is why in verse 15, he says that their own logic and wisdom would tell them that they need to run away. He's not being sarcastic here when he calls them wise, although there are times where he has done this sarcastically. Here he is not. He is appealing to their common sense. He is appealing to their spirit-informed consciences. Basically, what he's saying is, after everything I've explained, I know you get this. I trust you. You're Christians. You know what's going on. You're not dummies. You're wise. You have the ability to come to the right conclusion here. And the result is that they'll naturally, as Paul says here, judge what he says not judge in the sense of determining if Paul is right or wrong, but in their own minds, bringing all of this evidence to its natural conclusion, which is idolatry is to be avoided. Make the decision. You get it. You're smart. And in judging, they should then make a resulting decision about their behavior and actions, not just intellectually. Not just in their minds and hearts saying, I'm going to do this, but actually moving forward and doing it. Fleeing, avoiding. But Paul's not done. Although he has given the Corinthians and us plenty of information to understand understand the dangers of idolatry from past examples, he goes on to bring this into the present by way of the Lord's table. 
what we refer to as the Lord's Supper or communion. The, at our church, monthly remembrance of the sacrifice of Christ by taking of the elements. Biblically, ripping up a loaf of bread and having some wine for us, a little wafer and some juice. And he begins this explanation in the next verse, which brings us to our next point, our next concluding reality of idolatry, and that is the reality of of identification. We'll see this in verses 16 through 18, and we'll spend quite a bit of time here. He writes in verses 16 and 18 through 18, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? This is just communion. Verse 17, since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? In order to explain the depths and the dangers of partaking in any part of idol worship, Paul sets up the reality of what the Lord's table is for Christians. This is the backdrop. This is the positive. This is the good. This is what we practice and do. And then he will go on to the negative. You know that the Lord's table was instituted by Jesus Christ himself on the night he was betrayed. It was towards the end of a meal with the disciples, the Last Supper, the Passover meal. And we read at the end of the meal in Matthew 26, we read this. Verses 26 through 30. Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. Well, that's different. They'd never heard him say something like that before at a meal with a visual contact there, a visual illustration. He goes on, and when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And that was it. Verse 30 says, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. All four Gospels give an account of this last meal with the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, including Christ's institution of communion. It is this practice of communion that Paul explains in verse 17 of our passage this morning. We know that, as Jesus said, we do this in remembrance of Him. We do it to remember Him, specifically to remember His sacrifice on the cross. But there's a bit more to it. First, Paul refers to the cup of blessing. What this is and what we saw with the Last Supper is at the end of a traditional Jewish meal, there would be one final cup of wine that they would share together. And the most honored guest at the table for that particular meal would lift it up and then give some sort of benediction or blessing. At the annual Passover meal, that final cup was called the cup of blessing. In communion, this translates simply to the cup, the juice that we drink. And Paul goes on and says, when we drink, it is, quote, a sharing in the blood of Christ. The blood here not merely refers to the blood that coursed through his veins because he was human. 
It is a reference specifically to the blood that was shed, that was spilt, that was bled on the cross. In other words, a sharing in the blood of Christ is a sharing in the death of Christ. Then you have the bread. This refers to the first element of the Lord's Supper. The bread that he took and that we take is a literal bread, or for us, some derivative of bread, a cracker, a wafer. At the actual Last Supper and in the early church, they would have one literal loaf of bread that they would break apart and pass out. It wasn't just for that particular meal. That's just how they ate. We kind of do that today in our meals, but mom or dad slices it up or the factory slices it up for you, and then we put it on everyone's plate, but it all came from the same dough, the same loaf of bread. That's important in a minute. For communion, we've streamlined it a little bit in the American modern church, make it more efficient and sanitary, but it's the same thing, same idea. The breaking of the bread, mind you, is not symbolic of the breaking of his body. We don't have something like that at the cross as we do with the spilling of the blood. Again, it's simply because back then you had one loaf that needed to be broken into pieces, and it was important that they were sharing that piece of bread, that loaf of bread, among the participants, the importance we'll see in a second. So when he says there is one bread, it's all because it's eaten from the same loaf. Symbolically, this refers to his body and again to the death of that body for our sakes. So, when we drink of the cup and eat the bread during communion in remembrance of Christ, it is to specifically remember His death on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And when Paul says that we share in the cup and bread, we are sharing in His death. The word that he uses there, translated sharing in our Bibles, it's the same word that is translated as fellowship. Fellowship. And what it means here is that we have fellowship with His death. We participate in His death. Not that we die on a cross, but we receive and partake in the blessings that flow from His death, that are possible because of His death, such as forgiveness of sins, redemption, reconciliation, adoption into the family of God. We can go on and on. All of it is what we have what is represented in communion that we remember as we participate in fellowship with his death. And this can all be summarized in the phrase, new covenant. Turn ahead a page or so to verse 25 of chapter 11. Later, Paul will explain communion even more. This is the passage I refer to when we take communion, talking about Uh, The warning against taking it in an unworthy manner, it's from this section. We'll look at verse 25. Paul writes, In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Did you catch this? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. It was in his death, which we remember in taking communion, drinking that cup, that he enacted the new covenant. He said this cup is the new covenant 
but in my blood. That's significant. In the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, the blood of sacrificial animals had to be spilt over and over and over again. In Christ and in His blood, the New Covenant was put into effect, thereby eliminating the need for the temporary sacrifice, those animals, because the permanent, once-for-all sacrifice has come. That's why we're told not to do this anymore. We don't need to do this. We, we just take the, the cup and the, uh, in communion as remembrance. It's symbolic. It's, it's commanded, so it's sin if we don't do it, but it's not necessary for the forgiveness of sins as it was in the Old Covenant because Christ has come. His blood was spilt. He was the perfect and permanent Lamb. Side note, as I just mentioned, we are commanded to take communion, but it is a symbolic remembrance. In other words, if you miss communion for a month, it does not mean that you lose fellowship with Christ and His death until you are able to take it. That's not what it means. Nor is a new believer outside of fellowship with Christ until he has a chance to take communion. Commanded, yes, but also symbolic not necessary for salvation and forgiveness. The assumption here is that communion or the Lord's table is a normal part of the Christian life and therefore emblematic of all believers' fellowship with the Lord, so it is very important. It must be done regularly. This has been Grace to the Bay with Dr. Roger Chen. For the next part in this series, join us next week at this same time. Grace to the Bay is the radio ministry of Grace Church of the Bay Area, practicing and proclaiming the purity of biblical truth. You are invited to join them for worship services in San Mateo, Sundays at 11 a.m. Visit gracebayarea.org for service times, directions, live streamed services, listen to archived sermons, or to make a tax-deductible donation to help keep Grace to the Bay on the air so that we can continue to share Pastor Roger's teaching with you each week. Again, that's gracebayarea.org. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.